Welcome to part three of our three-part podcast series, CRST the Podcast. Policy, Practice, and Promise, Billing and Coding for Telemedicine in the COVID-19 Era. We're glad you've joined us to hear David Goldman, Alice Epitropoulos, Scott Schachter, and Mary Pat Johnson discuss what factors will continue to shape the future of telemedicine in the post-COVID-19 era. This program is editorially independent and was supported with advertising by Allergan, an AbV company. The opinions and views expressed during this program are those of the individual participants and not necessarily those of Allergan, an AbV company, or its affiliates. Now, let's get to the panel. What are you guys doing for, for billing uh, for most of your telemedicine visits currently? I'm, I'm primarily billing the 992 codes for most everybody, um, depending on how much time spent, a uh, level of decision making, and all the normal criteria that we look at. Yeah, pretty, pretty much the same, the 992, um, depending on the time spent. Um, and I think that, you know, it's important to also include the amount of time that's spent, because a lot of times, you know, you know, our um, office staff will spend time to schedule MRIs or schedule other testing, and that, that, um, that amount of time can be included in the telehealth. Yeah, I, I'm similar, too, with the 992 codes, but is that what you're seeing, Mary, on sort of a uh, U.S.-wide uh, scope, are, are most doctors primarily using those codes with these telemedicine visits? Well, I think they're still very popular with doctors, but if you can support an intermediate eye code, it's oftentimes a better choice than the E&M code, depending on the presenting problem. And when Medicare opened up the instructions to say eye codes were appropriate, uh, we did see a large shift in some of our clients who moved in to at least incorporate the intermediate level, I think it'd be very difficult to get a comprehensive exam, you know, with a decent fundus exam through a telemedicine. But ICODES or the ENM, or excuse me, ICODE, ENM or the intermediate ICODE, um, for any time you have the synchronous video and then default to the other 99 codes when you're just doing a phone call. Yeah, so you're referring, when you say it to me, you're referring to the 92012 code? 92012 for an established or 92002 for a new patient. And if you're comparing that to an E&M, it's probably most appropriately compared to 99213. Um, certainly, if you can support 99214 based on the presenting condition, that would be the, the preferred code. And, and you know, we're, we're talking now, obviously, we, we'd all like to see this uh, continue regarding telehealth. Uh, what, what should we be aware of or what, what needs to happen for this to continue? I know we spoke at the very beginning about Congress kind of getting tied up, but what do you think are the next steps in order to allow telemedicine in its current state or, or a similar state uh, to continue? Well, they, again, they have to make a deliberate act to make this continue. So I think any correspondence from the professional societies would probably go a long way in helping force that issue. And I can't imagine there's going to be any pushback. I would imagine most professional societies are for this. Dermatology loves it. Ophthalmology and optometry, of course, have done well with it. Um, even family practice, you know, calling and checking on a diabetic or a hypertensive patient can easily be done via telemedicine. So you would like to think there'd be universal support um, to make sure something happens to keep it as an option. You know, and everyone is so concerned with access to care in this country. And this has really opened up those ideas of access to care. You know, you're in these remote little rural towns and you don't have specialists very close to you. So you have a lot of patients who perhaps aren't seeing their doctor as frequently as they should. And this could really even out that, those highs and lows. 
as Allison mentioned earlier, we're going to see industry work harder at incorporating more technologies into these telemedicine devices. I think that's definitely um, where we're headed in the future. Um, assuming, you know, this continues to get approved, I can see a lot of more, you know, Scott mentioned acuity testing, and, and I think there's just a lot more space that we never really thought of before, but is going to be becoming more and more ever present in our, our way of practicing. David, you've got patients drive through uh, pressure testing, whether or not glaucoma has, there are devices, I think, where patients can measure their pressure at home, correct? There are. Is that happening very much? That I don't know. Uh, I think there's only one or two companies that have them. Do you know, Alice? They're pretty expensive. So I think yeah. that is the limiting factor. Um, but for people that, you know, um, can afford it, I think, you know, I think the sales have gone up at least. Yeah, I mean, there's, al there's also the 4C company. They have that uh, sort of at-home Amsler grid um, that notifies the retina doctor when there's a change. And they actually partnered with another company that's going to have uh, at-home Mac OCT capability. Um, which I think will obviously be very helpful for the retina folks. Oh, imagine that. I wanted to uh, expand on Scott's uh, point about, you know, you know, the most common, at least in my practice, the most common reason for a telehealth visit was not only chalazion, but also dry eye disease, you know, burning, irritation, blurred vision. And many of us feel that this is probably due to a combination of increased computers use, you know, zooming, and then also, I think the masks, um, you know, I, we feel that, you know, the, the air that ex is expelled from breathing um, going out, you know, through the top of the mask into our eyes kind of triggers inflammation and evaporation of the tears. And this may also explain the increase in the sty formation because it's possible that the bacteria uh, from our breathing directed towards the eyes uh, could be precipitating this. Um, you know, but we're actually, a couple of us are thinking about starting a study on this to confirm that. Uh, we discuss, you know, what type of outcomes patients expect um, or should expect and how they want to see. Do they want to be able to see up close? Do they want to see all distances? Do they want to see far away? Um, you know, and oftentimes, you know, the patient's family is there. And I think that there's benefits of, you know, having a few sets of ears listening in on the conversation when you're talking about, uh, you know, anything, surgery or recommendations on treating their dry eye disease. So um, I usually encourage family to, to listen in. Yeah, that's a great point, Alice. You know, I, I think a lot of times when we're counseling patients on cataract surgery, especially intraocular lens choices, there's so much material that that's going through that they don't always remember everything or even half of everything. And so there's a lot of, well, the doctor, you never discussed that with me. So telehealth definitely gives that additional opportunity to kind of revisit those things again, answer patient questions again, which oftentimes they might be a little nervous to ask. And the spouse or friend says, well, why don't you ask the doctor X, Y, or Z? So, you know, we haven't um, made it a formal part of our routine yet, but um, it's come up to the point where we, we may consider doing that with our cataract patients to sort of have one additional counseling session with them via telehealth just to make sure we really uh, have covered everything with them and they feel comfortable before going into surgery. Yes, as someone who co-manages that stuff, I can say that's all appreciated. The more communication, the better, uh, all the way around between us and the surgeon and the patient, understanding what the expected outcomes are. And um, they're not on some of those older patients that, you know, they hear, they don't hear what you're saying. It, it's, they hear something different. Um, we, we're doing that a lot with, um, 
uh, we do uh, a lot of LASIK and those, um, those consultations are done virtually and, and making sure everyone's on the same page. I, I think there's no such thing as too much communication on those sorts of surgeries and what the expectations are, especially like you're saying for a premium lens, um, you, everyone, as some, again, the surgeon's done with it. It's on me now. And I, we all want to make sure, I want to make sure that all goes really smoothly. Yeah, I, I think that it's also important to, um, you know, kind of really emphasize that, you know, telehealth is not going to replace um, the doctor and patient, you know, face-to-face -face, uh, visit. But at the same time, I think patients and their families might feel more comfortable in their own home setting. And they might absorb more, they might listen more uh, compared to when they're in the office and maybe a little bit more anxious. And, and Alice, one last thing, when you... Um do your study, see if, it, see if you find it's more women than men and see if you find a previous diagnosis or presence of blepharitis in yeah. those patients. That's what I've been finding. For sure. One question to Mary, do you feel there are any underutilized opportunities for telemedicine right now from you know billing coding standpoint? Oh, good question. Let me think about that. I think the glaucoma world has it pretty well locked down. So let's check, check in on the patient compliance with medications. Retina is doing better, um, especially with a hybrid type visit, having the patient present for imaging, follow up with a discussion with the physician electronically. Oh, something comes to you during the Q&A uh, after this too, feel free to, uh, to add it in. Probably one of the most common um, areas of telemedicine is psychiatry and psychology. Hmm. They're exclusively telemedicine. Uh, but that almost um, kind of um, emphasizes the importance of doing these uh, telehealth visits with uh, dry eye patients. About dry eye patients, the counseling of these patients is a bit psychiatric. You want to make sure, rest assured, you know, assure them that what they're doing is working. We did have a physician call and could not get a patient to stop scheduling these appointments. Kept getting a hold of the tech, please put me back on the schedule for another telehealth. And it turns out after weeks of this, the patient's daughter said the doctor was the only person the patient talked to all day. Mm -hmm. So really in this time of isolation and staying home, the physician was really that patient's only lifeline for those multiple calls a week. So he was being frustrated. Of course, the patient and family members just cherished him for it, for taking care of her. So it, there is a little psychology in what you're doing. And that goes a long way, especially in these patients that, you know, are so anxious about their condition. So. But I, I think, especially like you mentioned with, with dry eye, Alice, I mean, a lot of those patients, in my opinion, uh, how they're neuropathic pain patients. They're not really dry eye. Those are the ones that are scanning the globe. Uh, I had somebody fly from Greece to come see me for dry eye. Um, the further they're willing to travel, the, the more worried I am about them. Mm -hmm. um, but, but for the dry patients, just having somebody to connect to and acknowledge you have a problem really does go a long way. Absolutely. Yeah, and, and I can tell you, and you guys would probably agree early on, you know, we, we were there for patients when their only alternative was going to be to go to perhaps the ER or urgent care. A lot of concerns about being exposed. Um, I mean, ER physicians are there to save lives. They're not necessarily there to take care of a conjunctivitis or something like that. So um, they don't always end up necessarily getting the right diagnosis or treatment when they go that route. Um, so that, uh, I had a few patients who felt like they said, you know what, I called everywhere. You're the only person who was able to see me at all. 
You know, as I say, during, during the shutdown, there were probably about 500 patients that, you know, could not obviously keep their appointments. So what do you do with those 500 patients? You're not going to be able to just squeeze them in right away. So that's another area that really, you know, helped with telehealth because we were able to telehealth help. Um, we were able to kind of go through the schedule and kind of triage to see, you know, who, who we can do telehealth calls on and who needs to actually come in, uh, which, which was really helpful. All right. Well, I'd like to take this time to thank the panelists for a fantastic discussion, great education for, for me and I'm sure all of you. And I also want to just uh, thank Allergan for sponsoring this. Um, you know, it's wonderful that we have the opportunity to have this kind of session. Thank you for tuning in to our program today. We'd also like to thank Drs. Goldman, Epitropolis, Schachter, and Ms. Johnson for their participation in today's program. This program was supported with advertising by Allergan, an AbbVie company. The opinions and views expressed during this program were those of the individual participants and were not necessarily those of Allergan, an AbbVie company, or its affiliates. This content will be available for on-demand listing as a series of special episodes on CRST, the podcast.